Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Shanker Chronicles podcast. This six-episode podcast series, it's an opportunity for me to take a deep dive into the historical, political, scientific, and philosophical background of some of the most important issues of our day. So thank you for joining me today as we all work towards a better regulated society, a more self-regulated society, and a more just society. Today, I want to talk about self-reg and COVID, but I thought I'd start off telling you a story. Around 15 years ago, I was working for Fraser, Dr. Fraser Mustard. I was the, his president of the uh, Council of Early Child Development. And uh, one of the responsibilities I had was I was running up to Ottawa every other month uh, and presenting submissions to various uh, political commu- uh, committees. But one time I was invited to come talk to the cabinet about the use of cor- uh, corporal punishment on children. And we wanted the government uh, to issue an advisory to parents that um, science now showed us quite definitively that corporal punishment harms a child. Uh, So uh, we had prepared, because it was cabinet, we'd prepared very carefully for this. And I came up and I had, um, you know, tons of charts and all kinds of research citations. And uh, I'd gotten into my stride and I was um, explaining um, the long-term effects on a child if you hit them. And I got interrupted by one of the ministers. And he said to me, I don't care about your facts. And this stopped me cold. And I saw um, around the table, uh, I had lost them. There was head nods. And on the way back, you know, I was, and I really didn't know um, how to continue. I mean, Why was I there if not to tell them about um, the facts as we knew them? So I was processing all this, um, you know, on on the way home. And I realized that, um, you know, there's really two kinds of uh, politicians, uh, those who lead and those who lag. And this idea of a lagging indicator is an important what it means is that um, sometimes politicians really want to reflect back and amplify what the biases or the beliefs are of their base. That's what that minister was telling me, that regardless of what science may have said, uh, he was not prepared to say anything that would upset his base. And that's what the rest of the cabinet or most of them agreed with. This really troubled me, not least because, you know, I was trying to figure out what my own role was uh, in, um, you know, coming up to Ottawa, trying to make these submissions. Uh, No doubt uh, they would follow up my meeting with someone who would come and tell them exactly what they wanted to hear, a different set of facts, uh, or at least claim to be a different set of facts. So this was this became a sort of um, constant worry for me. And uh, back in 2015, 
when uh, Donald Trump was first running for the nomination of the Republican Party, uh, I read something that I found profoundly disturbing. And I remember um, uh, sharing this with uh, Susan and uh, Teresa. Um, what the team was doing, the team around Trump, what they were doing was they were holding regular focus groups and they would hold a focus group after every one of his rally speeches. And what they were looking at was what were the lines that resonated with the audience and what were the lines that simply didn't work. And Donald Trump turned out to be very a, a very effective um, you know, actor, if you like. Uh, he was very good at um, processing what this team was telling him and adjusting his style adjusting his cadence, and clearly adjusting the punchlines, the student lines. What he was doing was he was uh, amplifying uh, the beliefs and the biases of a particular strong group and trying to grow the base. That was the key, trying to uh, increase the number of voters that would join uh, that would be persuaded to adopt, you know, maybe some of the uh, maybe some of the rhetoric was a little strong for them. But if you got enough, um, you know, hot spots, uh, you could bring them along too. And uh, this is precisely what we see happening in Florida today. Uh, uh, Governor DeSantis is using the same strategy, and it would appear he's doing it with some success. Uh, and I say that because uh, this year alone, um, DeSantis has raised $56 million uh, for uh, what is obviously, you know, uh, going to be a, a campaign, a presidential campaign in 2023. Um, but what was striking about this is that more, almost half of that, of that uh, haul comes from outside the uh, state of Florida. He's not about to change. Uh, he's not about to uh, alienate um, this growing base across the nation. That's what, you know, that's what he's after. And his strategy is to amplify the, you know, to, you know, to repeat and amplify uh, the sort of uh, Trumpian sentiments that have grown over the last few years. Um, and um, there's a real lesson here for politicians. And the lesson was the lesson uh, from the disaster that occurred with George H. Bush. Um, and it's worth remembering that uh, at, you know, early on in his presidency, Bush had a 90% approval rating after the success in the Gulf War. Um, so he was riding very, very high. Uh, but Bush became alarmed about the growth of the budget deficit. And, you know, he feared that uh, if, you know, he didn't do something to bring the deficit down, that there would be a serious uh, recession, serious unemployment, and this would uh, basically undermine his campaign for re-election. And so he thought, you know, given his really high numbers, um, he thought that uh, in the middle of his term, he could uh, join with the Democrats and pass a tax increase um, to counteract the, the, the rising budget deficit. His problem was 
that this was the same guy that had campaigned uh, on the on the platform that he would not raise taxes no matter what. And there was that famous line where he said, you know, read my lips. Um, I will not raise taxes. So this essentially destroyed his uh, campaign for re-election. He alienated his base. Uh, and then, you know, unfortunately for him, um, you had uh, Ross Perot and uh, Pat Buchanan um, really jumping on, you know, they jumped into the primaries and they uh, stirred up this hostility to um, Bush's, uh, you know, about face. And eventually Bush had to apologize to his base and say, I was wrong to raise taxes and so on and so on. But he was done. Um, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Bill Clinton wins. So it's always been an aspect of politics, and it's become especially worrying over the last, say, uh, since the 90s, with the proliferation of things like social media that have really given politicians, uh, you know, the ruthless ones, an opportunity to, um, you know, mold public opinion, or at least appear, you know, they, they are tailoring their messages to what their pollers are telling them, uh, and then amplifying it and trying to grow their base. But when we're talking about our health, or our very survival, um, we don't want, you know, none of us wants this kind of uh, emotional manipulation, in effect, um, to make our decisions. We want our decisions. I think we all want our decisions to be as reasonable, as rational as we can. So we turn to science. Um, and uh, the problem is, uh, you know, I've spent my whole life working in science with scientists and science isn't quite the you know sort of consensus voice that you might think i was talking a couple uh, in the first podcast you know about this idea of um consensus politics you know you have rational debate that's very much what science is like there's an awful lot of debate uh and it really takes um you know opposing views even if something like uh, uh climate change in the beginning there were quite a lot of scientific dissenting views and so it's through this sort of messy process that's carried out through journals and, um, well, primarily through journal articles, uh, scientists eventually get to some sort of a consensus. We're sort of there today, but but it's a moving target. That's the key. Uh, the issues are constantly morphing. They're constantly uh, changing. And that is certainly the case today. We have, you know, scientifically speaking, we have some very troubling things occurring. Um, and for example, uh, there has been a, a, a very uh, worrying increase in infection rates in Germany and Belgium. And those are both fairly highly vaccinated countries. And what we're seeing in Europe, I, I guess, you know, the headlines this morning, uh, Today is uh, November 22nd. The headlines this morning are all about the wave of unrest that's roiling Europe, that's occurring, you know, uh, in Austria, in, in the Netherlands, in Germany. Um, and uh, part of the problem is that, you know, uh, we had thought that 
looked, you know, originally people, uh, scientists were suggesting that if we could hit that 70% rate, we would, you know, we would start to have some sort of herd immunity. Uh, but that's not happened, and partly because of um, the Delta variant, um, and partly because uh, it turns out that we need a higher percentage, or at least the consensus view now is that to get to herd immunity, maybe we need uh, 90%. We certainly need more than 70. You know, it's a complex area. And, and now, to make it even worse, uh, public health officials can make mistakes. Um, and uh, sometimes they even own up to the mistakes. Um, and uh, I'm going to discuss one such case today. It's a very interesting study. But, um, you know, if a public health official can make a mistake, think how much harder it is for uh, politicians. Uh, it's, it's just there are so many uh, variables that they have to consider um, you know, they have to worry about the effects of massive unemployment, uh, the uh, destruction of food line, uh, of uh, food delivery system. There, there are so many issues here. Um, you know, we see this with, you know, the problems that we're having with, uh, uh, you know, the disruption uh, due to not having enough drivers of food delivery. Then, uh, and then you factor into all that the kinds of things that we're seeing in British Columbia where you get this massive environmental crisis, uh, you know, what they call a river of rain. So, you know, this is a, this is a difficult time um, and it's difficult for everybody. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, make the best decision that we can. Uh, scientists are trying to give the best advice that they can in what is, you know, uh, unlike... You know, you're, you're unlike the case of, of pure or ideal science where you can run a randomized control trial and then you can, you know, you can um, really eliminate what are called the confounds so we can be sure uh, the effects of an intervention. Well, we can't do that um, in uh, real time. We can't do that. Uh, you can't run an RCT on countries. Um, and so we have to have a different approach um, and we have to try to figure out um, from what's happening today, uh, what are the lessons for us in terms of what seems to harm and what seems to help? And uh, I read a study um, just the other day that I thought was a wonderful example of um, good science, of how uh, a big team, and this is a very big team, came together, uh, and the lead author's name is Mishra, S. Mishra, and the article was published in Science Reports, just published. And um, what they did was what's called a counterfactual analysis of um, government decisions, government policy around COVID. And um, they had, uh, as the perfect object lesson here, the perfect real-time natural experiment, they could compare what happened in Sweden with what happened in Denmark. So, um, you know, in all kinds of ways, these are very, very similar societies. Um, they're similar economically, socially, culturally. Of course, Sweden is, is, is almost double the size of Denmark. So, you know, it's a population of, what, 10 million Denmark's about five. So you have to factor that into your analysis. Um, 
And so, you know, we know that the death rate in Sweden was very, very high, but we can't just go by death rate. So instead, the measure that we use is the number of deaths per, uh, per million people. And what we see is that the death rate in Sweden was around 1,480 per million, whereas the death rate in Denmark was around 482, I believe. Yep, 482 per million. So that's a that's a that's a staggering difference. Um, and what's most important about this uh, about this contrast? You know, and I, here I'm just talking scientifically. Is that the two countries adopted completely different strategies in the beginning for dealing with COVID? Uh, so. Denmark went for lockdown, uh, and they went for lockdown very, very early, whereas Sweden went for um, self-mandatory uh, self controls. In other words, um, that uh, the behaviors that they wanted would be voluntary be, uh, rather than imposed by the government. And the thinking was, uh, in Sweden, the thinking was that Sweden has a very you know, strong sense of citizenship. Um, this is a very uh, enlightened society. And there were three behavior, behaviors that they wanted Swedes to adopt. Uh, and they thought that uh, given the nature of the society, Swedes would uh, naturally adopt these, whereas in, um, uh, in Denmark, these behaviors were mandated. And the three behaviors they were looking at was one, that you would avoid going to crowded places. Two, that you would really practice um, uh, personal hygiene, hand washing and using hand sanitizers. And three, that you would not go to work if you were feeling sick. And one of the most interesting aspects of this comparison is that uh, Sweden didn't do very good at seeing these behavior changes. Whereas in Denmark, these three changes were profoundly uh, instituted as a result of the lockdown. So um, it wasn't so much that uh, Sweden was uh, experimenting with herd immunity. Rather, it was they were relying on the, uh, you know, Swedes' sense of uh, civic duty to self-impose. And it didn't happen. And the results are striking. And so the results were, uh, it's important to remember that Sweden and Denmark had very similar epidemic trajectories in the very beginning. In other words, uh, the rate of infection on, let's say, you know, day one, I think they started the study. I, I didn't make a note of this. I think it was in March of 2020. Um, the rate of infection was almost identical in the two countries. But Denmark imposed lockdown very quickly. And what happened was that the uh, trajectory, the, the COVID trajectory flattened in Denmark much earlier than in flattened in Sweden. And the result was that by August of 2020, Sweden had five times higher death rate than, uh, than was seen in Denmark. So um, all of that is really 
stunning. But then they did something absolutely brilliant. And they did uh, what's called a counterfactual analysis. And now what that means is, what they asked was, what would have happened in Denmark had they followed the Swedish policy? And what would have happened in Sweden had they followed the Danish policy? And through uh, uh, sophisticated statistical analysis, what they discovered was that had that happened, Denmark would have had the same death rate and the same infection rate as Sweden. And Sweden would have had the same death rate, around one-fifth the death rate, and the same infection rate as Denmark. So this is a, this is a stunning uh, lesson in the impact that government decisions, government actions can make. Um, in this case, it was at the very beginning. Um, you know, we have a, a, a fascinating situation today um, where we have an, a lot of uh, uh, experiments, if you like, that we can, you know, different strategies that we can assess. Uh, so we have what's happening in Austria. Austria is a very interesting example where uh, the infection rate has exploded. And so the government has decided they, they're going to have a very strict lockdown policy and they will punish those uh, who have not been vaccinated. And we see exactly the same thing happening in Singapore. Singapore is doing the same. Uh, but the question that this raises is, this is a very different situation. It's a very different scenario from what occurred in the beginning of the epidemic. So, you know, it's an open question. Uh, will this strategy be effective? But we have reason to believe it will be um, because of the manner in which Australia responded to their sudden jump in infection rates by um, uh, literally um, locking down the states. You could not travel from uh, one state to another. The effects of the Australian uh, strategy were successful. And so, you know, if you're looking at trying to, um, you know, uh, weigh the pros and cons of the different issues, we have reason to believe that um, through lockdown and promoting universal uh, uh, vaccination, this is, in fact, our most effective tool for containing the explosion of the Delta variant. Um, and so we have some stunning data now coming out of the U.S., um, you know, we, where we can compare uh, the uh, outcomes in those states which are the least vaccinated and those states which are the most vaccinated. And it turns out that in the least vaccinated state, you have four times, uh, uh, it's, you are four, the individual is four times more likely to get COVID and five times more likely to die than, uh, than the uh, high vaccinated states. So we have a lot of data that, that, that is, uh, you know, sort of pointing us um, in the direction which here in Canada, our, our own public health officials have taken, uh, supporting, uh, uh, telling us that, uh, you know, as complex as this is, um, that uh, we are 
um, you know, trying as best we can um, to have our scientists and have our, our physicians engage in that reasoned debate to guide the rest of us. Um, but we have a problem today, and it struck me that the problem is very similar to what we saw when uh, governments started to impose restrictions on smoking in public places. Uh, we saw the same anger. We saw the same threats. Um, we saw essentially the same red brain behavior. Uh, but what changed smoking? Uh, and I'll just take the U.S. as my example. They were the major force here. What changed what changed the situation was the change in public opinion. So whereas in the 50s, uh, the base, there, a, a large base was, you know, opposed to government uh, interfering with the individual's right to smoke, um, all of that began to shift in 1964. 1964 was when the U.S. Surgeon General uh, uh, published uh, his famous report um, documenting the, the evidence that smoking was dangerous. After that, two years later, you got um, the U.S. introduced uh, the measures to ban advertising smoke, that, that uh, cigarette packages had to have on their packaging that it was dangerous to your health. And, and, and slowly at first and then quicker and quicker, public opinion began to change. And then in 88, you had um, another U.S. Surgeon General's report at this time comparing uh, smoking to uh, addictive drugs, saying that nicotine was an addiction uh, comparable in the report, they said they argued to opium and, opium and heroin. So uh, when we look back on this, um, what we see is this unbelievable shift in public opinion um, to the point where, uh, you know, in the beginning, uh, around only uh, in the 30s, I believe, uh, percent felt that smoking was dangerous. And then as a result of the 64 report, now today it's uh, 70 70 percent of the populace uh, believes that smoking is dangerous and should be banned in public places. So this was a case where uh, the scientists were able to dramatically change public opinion. However, it was not without um, its challenges. Uh, and the big challenge came from the tobacco companies. So uh, the, 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 the major tobacco producers uh, knew exactly what the science was saying. They'd known it from the 50s. Um, but they launched a campaign after the 64 Surgeon General's report, um, basically designed to persuade smokers that they did not have to give up um, uh, smoking, that there was nothing to suggest that smoking was um, that smoking was injurious to health, um, and the way they did it was they hired uh, they hired a PR firm uh, to run this, and the PR firm then hired doctors and actors to make advertisements saying that uh, that um, quote um, that the scientific data quote was merely statistical and that it was an open con controversy whether smoking was damaging to health. Uh, and so the idea was that, um, that 
to plant the, the doubt in the consumer's mind that there was no um, physical uh, proof that there was a direct link between smoking and disease. And they did that for 40 years. They did that through this whole period that I'm talking about, trying until eventually through, you know, those major actions, they were finally forced to start paying up and admit the truth and admit the various ways that they were trying to hook kids or uh, hook individuals or admit that filters really didn't do anything to reduce nicotine, may in fact have increased it, and so on and so on. But what's worrying about this is that they were only doing this, the tobacco companies were only doing this in order to bump up their profits. Um, they were, it was, you know, a really, really disturbing uh, example of the complete, uh, you know, demise of morality uh, that all that mattered was your uh, stock price um, and your sales and uh, that they were quite deliberately, quite intentionally trying to subvert the, um, what the scientists were saying. And that's all obviously been on my mind because, you know, the worry I have is that similar forces are at work around the vaccination um, uh, debate, uh, which is turning violent. It, uh, Europe has just gone through a very violent weekend. The protests are violent. So um, are there uh, some political figures or not necessary politicians? It could be any kind of... Uh, social influencer, who for their own reasons are trying to uh, stir things up, are trying to amplify uh, the feelings of, you know, the fear of losing individual rights or the fear of authoritarianism and so on. I don't want to oversimplify this. Um, uh, political leaders can have very different motivations. Uh, it could be that um, they are really just trying to juggle uh, competing very serious issues. Um, and so their feeling is that, you know, they're looking for that balance um, and they need public opinion on their side in order to juggle this. So that's a possibility. The other possibility is they actually believe what they're saying. You know, the comparable example would be Neville Chamberlain and the Munich Agreement. Chamberlain, um, really was acting out of what he thought was the best interests of the country. But we now know in retrospect that he was in incredibly deep denial about the dangers uh, forced, uh, presented by the Nazis. Uh, he was in denial about the fact that the Nazis were secretly breaking all of the restrictions that had been imposed after the First World War. So they were busy building tanks, they were busy building uh, warships, they were busy building airplanes. All of these things were, um, you know, there was lots of evidence that they were doing this, but but Chamberlain was so desperate to uh, avoid war, uh, uh, avoid the calamity of the First World War, that he blocked his mind. Uh, and so there is that fear that there are figures that, you know, for misguided I would say misguided reasons, are nonetheless in deep denial about what the science is telling us. But maybe there's a third faction, and that is the ones that are doing this 
only for political gain. Just like the tobacco companies, uh, they know what they're doing, um, but they also know that they can uh, get a lot of political support, a lot of political funding by by appealing to this to these emotions, emotions of fear and anger, uh, and then amplifying it. Um, and you know, it's worrying because there was a study that just came out showing us that in Germany, where you know the opposition is you know pretty fierce. Uh, it's being organized by a far-right political a splinter group who see this as an opportunity to uh, grow their own uh, political base. Um, so, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, this is the issue we've been facing um, with, for example, political commentators that are encouraging anti-vaccination while they themselves have been vaccinated. Um, you know, this is done uh, consciously uh, and it's, um, you know, uh, it, it, the result is uh, what I've been talking about in my first two sessions, um, a very um, polarized um, uh, society in which violence is growing daily, um, whether that violence is physical or verbal, uh, verbal to begin with, but then the, the fear is that verbal violence turns into physical. And of course, the more uh, stress that you can create uh, by getting voters agitated, um, the more anxious they become, the more kindled their alarm becomes, and the more readily they will support the fringe group or the political leader who is trying to grow his own base. The point of this blog is really um, to question what is the role of self-reg in all this? Uh, what is you know, what do what can we hope to contribute? We are not public health officials or physicians, um, but we we do look very carefully at what the conditions are that enable us to have fairly rational debates, not irrational, not red brain, but rational debates about complex issues, uh, rational debates that hopefully are carried out led by uh, newspapers um, and media outlets that uh, are trying to be reasoned, are trying to present the, the issues and all their complexity. So what we look at is we look at, you know, we're, we're looking at um, reducing the stress so that blue brains come back online, but that's not all we're doing. Uh, in an issue like this, there's a further aspect which is every bit as important. Um, this is not simply a blue brain issue. This is not simply a case of reducing societal stress so that we can turn off alarms so that we are not, as I talked about in the first two podcasts, you know, not so polarized that we're able to actually listen, process. Um, but that's not enough. Uh, and um, I come back to this example of Neville Chamberlain. When Chamberlain was prime minister, the country was still uh, deeply divided, uh, at least in the beginning years, you know, from 35, 36, 37, 38, uh, they were divided about going into war again. But uh, Winston Churchill was a constant um, thorn in the government side, even though they brought him into the government, sent him back to the Admiralty, um, and uh, warning about 
Um, you know, he had all this information about what the Nazis were doing, rebuilding, uh, even training their soldiers again, um, creating an army, um, the threat that they posed. But that wasn't enough. And what Churchill had to do when he became prime minister was he had to appeal to Britain's sense of a shared, uh, a shared destiny, a shared sense of, um, of sacrifice and commitment. Um, and he was wonderful at this. Uh, getting uh, Britain, you know, there were still dissenting voices when he became prime minister, and they were quickly drowned out, and the country became unbelievably uh, unified, unbelievably dedicated to the things that Churchill was preaching, which was justice, freedom, democracy, the rights of liberty. Um, and that's what has to happen now. We have um, some really interesting work being done. Uh, uh, there's a professor at UBC whose stuff I was just reading about on the weekend. Her name is Leslie Lutz on science communication. Um, you know, how we have to think really hard about the messaging, um, what works, what doesn't work, how we can convey all this. But self reg has another um, there is another element which we uh, focus on. And that other element is, again, the red brain. That element, it's not a case of saying we don't want red brain. It's that we don't want a red brain that is um, driven by anger. We want a red brain that is driven by a shared sense of, of humanity, a shared sense that we are all in this together. And this is why at the Merit Center, we place so much emphasis on our mission statement and on our values. And I can just tell you that this is something that, um, you know, we, we talk about this every single day. All of our self-regers are, 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 you know, the champions of these values, of these, uh, of these uh, principles. And so self-reg is really about the two sides of this. It's the blue brain side, reducing stress so, so that we can listen, process, and then really um, by reducing stress, trigger those feelings of empathy and solidarity that we desperately need today. And that's, that's, that's my goal. And that was uh, really the reason why I wanted to give this podcast, which I saw the first two as building up towards. Um, so uh, I'll continue um, to look at some of the uh, other major issues that relate to this. But this one is, I think, um, it's this perfect opportunity to see where self-reg fits in to what we are trying to accomplish, which is to stay safe, to stay alive, to stay healthy. Okay, so... This podcast, like, like the others, were, was brought to you by Self-Reg Global. It is part of our mission to bring Self-Reg knowledge to audiences around the world. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you will subscribe, uh, follow us on social media. And if there's anything you may have missed, you can check up on this on the show notes at the Self-Reg Global website, uh, selfregglobal.com. Thank you very much for joining me today uh, for this latest episode in the Shanker Chronicles and stay tuned. Thanks everyone.